Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the world's number one e-commerce podcast, Modern Commerce. I'm one of your hosts, Roger Emmer, joined as usual by my co-hosts and co-founders at Remy Labs, Brant Choate. What's up? What up? Doug Barnett. Hey, everybody. Hey, we're here. So, middle of the road week, guys. Middle of the road. That's it. That, Raj, come on. You can't abandon, you can't abandon your phrase. <laughs> Big week. Big it's week. been a big week, actually. I'm actually, for the listeners, Roger handed me a Red Bull, a sugar-free Red Bull, about 20 minutes <laughs> ago. You can, you'll t- and I've consumed half of this Red Bull, and I am buzzing. I'm feeling buzzy. Mine's empty. So, And Brant said, you drank four ounces of that and you're feeling buzzy. He goes, I need to adjust some things in my lifestyle, apparently. <laughs> it's true. I'm pretty good at like uh, not getting my tolerance too high, but I need to... Look at that. Mm. Well, I got a couple uh, starters here today. You guys ready? I'm ready. We're going to bring back Commerce Corner. Um, and we're going to start with... Wait, the- hold on. We're going to bring it back with a new name? <laughs> yeah. Because I don't even know what Commerce Corner is. <laughs> Commerce Corner is when we talk about things we bought. Okay, got it. Um, and Doug, you're up first. You have a couple of things that are new. And uh, you brought them to the office today. So. Oh, well, I got a new iPhone. Okay. I bought. Did I buy that online? I guess I bought that online. Um, it's brand new. You haven't really used it. No, I've just got it started today. It, to be honest, it feels exactly like my other iPhone, except it has a little more color in the screen at the top. Hmm. But the battery's good. I told this to Roger. That's the whole reason I like to get a new phone every year, is so that my battery stays good because I use my battery pretty heavily. Hmm. And then my Tesla whistle arrived. Which seems to be forged out of a single piece of aluminium, as Oof. Johnny Ive would say. Cold, cold rolled, right? Oh, yeah, prob- probably. Uh, and it annoyed the heck out of my wife. So I think it worked. Mine we'll hasn't call come that a dub. yet. Mine hasn't come yet, but I assume it will be here soon. I don't know if there's anything my wife hates more than the Cybertruck. <laughs> and the thing that was interesting about this whistle um, is it's supposed to, I think. Sh- be shaped like the Cybertruck. Mm-hmm. The back end of this whistle is probably fifty percent wider than the the cab where people are going to sit in the Cybertruck. If the whistle is actually representative of the real Cybertruck, I don't know how you're going to park that thing because the very back end where the tailgate is is going to be the width of an entire parking space. It's got some junk in the trunk. Yeah. Well, I got some new stuff. I got an iPhone too, as well. I've been using it for longer than Doug. Here's my verdict. I like it. It's really impactful. <laughs> yeah. Raj, I like it. Thank you for that um, review. The main thing I like about it is the camera. That's why I buy new iPhones. Even for the incremental updates, I just I just want the best pictures. I don't know. Call me weirdo, but it has the 2X um, optical zoom, which is pretty cool, and the 3X and the 0.5, so you got four different zooms. Uh, the dynamic island seems all right. Sometimes there's useful information there. I did turn off the always on screen today. You turned it off. Turned it off. I'm going to have to see about that. So, I haven't tried that yet. I don't love it so far, but we'll see. I also got the Apple Watch Ultra. This one I really like. We're going to test this real quick. What do we t- what is this? That's the siren. The siren for what? What is what is it used for? Apparently, if you get lost in the woods or something, that frequency can be heard like hundreds and hundreds of feet away. So like in an avalanche or... Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I like the design a lot. I like the bigger shape. The last Apple Watch I had, which I kind of stopped wearing because it's old, was the Series 4. So... What does that even mean? <clears throat> How when, would the, when did the Series 4 come out? I think 2019. Mm-hmm. Tons of new stuff. The always-on screen I hadn't had before. The battery's way better. Um... And I think it looks cool. So it does look cool. I like the look of the watch way better. <laughs> I like it. All right, Brand, I got a question for you. You didn't buy anything, but you deserve a treat. So you gotta think about that. <laughs> okay. Here's a question. We were in and you know, just give us your quick take. Uh, we were in San Francisco yep. together over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh what are your thoughts on San Francisco versus when you left? It's changed a lot. I left in the middle of the pandemic, basically. Yep. Um, I don't know, like 
maybe four months after it kind of first kicked off in um, watching like the narrative on Twitter is very different than like what I saw there when we were there over the weekend. Um, seems like tourism is coming back. Um, like the restaurants, the bars, everything were pretty full. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of like talking to people that live there, like a lot of, a lot more people stayed than I think like kind of the narrative on Twitter has been. Mm. And honestly, parts of the city looked quite a lot cleaner than, than when I left. So I don't know. I Good mean, job by like, you, San Francisco. seems like some things are on the ups there. Still very expensive, but. Yeah. The weather was amazing. Yeah. Very, very nice. Yeah. I liked it. We had yeah. a great time. Well, listeners, we've got a couple topics today. I'm going to link up these, um, a couple things in the show notes this time, but the topics we're going to talk about are based around two podcasts. <clears throat> And I'm going to get into the first one. This is a short, I think the whole thing is like 20 minutes or so. A short episode of Gary V's podcast. I think it's called the Gary V Audio Experience. Experience. Yep. And um, Gary is basically on one of his rants here. And he talks about two things. He talks about building a brand and he talks about crypto. Um, We're going to talk about building a brand first. So essentially... What he says is, in so many words, I don't understand how people don't think you that brand building isn't done on social media in September 22. And he references conversations he has with large companies and you know them going out and spending $10 million on television campaigns, commercials, traditional types of media. And he basically is just like, this is not, this is not how you do it. This is the new way is to build for social specifically. And I think there are a couple things that we can get into, but he talks about investing in art, not math. And I think what he means there is the creative is more important than like the just raw economics of buying ads. And he talks about building content across all the different platforms. So we've had a bunch of conversations about this, um, on this podcast and off, I have some new thoughts, but I'm going to kick it to Doug here. And you've had some experience leading a very large marketing company and building brand and spending lots and lots of money um, on brand. And kind of just compare and contrast like that experience and how you thought about social media and maybe like um, how you think about it after listening to what Gary had to say here. I learned a lot. Listen to that podcast um, from Gary. Just at the subtle nuance of um, the way he thinks about things. We've talked about this uh, for weeks and weeks now about that our belief is that content marketing needs to be the hub of any brand building marketing strategy moving forward. And even not brand building, just any marketing strategy moving forward. That is a pretty fundamental shift from when even I was running. I mean, the, our budget the last year we were running, uh, that marketing department was between paid and, and brand was around $125 million. Mm-hmm. So this is a very large budget. And I was not thinking about content marketing this way. Um, and the brand that I was at was not a simple place to kind of build a content strategy. But I think he's right. Um, And I even look at the way that I was hiring my social media people. It was almost an effort to just check a box. Like I knew we needed to be on social and I knew we needed to be active. But thinking strategically about each platform from a content perspective, the difference about how we should approach Facebook versus Snapchat, versus Instagram, versus TikTok, versus YouTube. There was some effort going into that that stuff. We had some really interesting ideas. We actually ran an intern competition at a large local university. And the interns that came out of that like generated some really interesting um, TikTok content for us. But it wasn't seen through the lens of the way that Gary is talking about this, which is like, this is... 2022 version of brand building. Mm -hmm. 
And the reason for that is the way that um, traditional brand marketing is measured yep. is very different than the way you would think about social media. It's about, you know, measuring your aided and your unaided brand awareness. And you've got, we, I mean, we would, we would run these, these campaigns or these research projects every six months. And then, you know, how many, how many would, you know, consider your brand? And then how much are we moving the needle? And we moved our unaided brand awareness a hundred percent in 12 months, which is really difficult to do. But I was not thinking about using social media and, and really hiring a very robust team by channel to think through the content strategy about how to really build the brand. And even maybe if within the last year, how TikTok has changed things with the algorithm um, and the way YouTube and some of their stuff around YouTube Shorts is coming out now that they're, they're monetizing there, Instagram trying to respond... Um, even the way Snapchat using filters is a very we we explored some of that. Um, there are so many interesting ways to to go build a brand, but it takes a real commitment mm-hmm. from the leadership, whether it's a board or the executive leadership, or even if you're a small company, to go start doing this. And but you, what's amazingly cool about the social environment today. It, you don't have to have big budgets to start building really good content for these platforms. And you don't really need to have formal education to learn about how strategically you should attack each mm-hmm. each platform. So I think that there's very scalable things that can be done across all these different platforms. And we've talked about this lots of times. I believe a paid strategy, marketing strategy only that's coin operated, put a coin in, get a gummy bear out, is a death march mm-hmm. over the long term. And so how can brand owners begin to think about what type of content should I be running? Why should I be running it? And why should people care? And what adjacencies, what partnerships could I go build? You can do all of those things without a lot of money, which is really cool. And that is not the way brand marketing usually works. Brand marketing is like, here's this mountain of money and I did this, it's very expensive and many people don't like it. It's very controversial in companies. Here's this mountain of money and we're going to go run all these brand ads and then we're going to hope that we get the results. We're not going to know for like months or years down the road. That's not true in social. You can get pretty clear signal very quickly. So I thought it was a masterclass from Gary and I'd encourage everybody to go listen to the episode. You said something interesting about basically getting buy-in, especially maybe it's not a huge company like Fortune 500, but it's a company that is doing millions or even billions of dollars a year in revenue. And this is a very hard pill to swallow. Um, Brent, I'm curious on your thoughts. One, just kind of overall on this, what he had to say, but two, like, is it just going to be wait until the like the changing of the guard is that what it's going to take or are we going to start seeing more and more uh, executives that are used to traditional types of brand building get on board with this type of strategy i think like if you think super tactically about this like what actually happens because i think that executives i've been around uh, or you know marketing folks they're not unaware of what's going on. They fact they, you know, they they pay close attention, but there's this moment in time where you know you might decide internally, like, okay, we're gonna try TikTok, and you sit in a meeting, and it's like, well, what should we do? And maybe you even had people kind of like go do some research, mm-hmm. and everyone sits down, and like when you actually try to make rubber meet the road in those types of meetings, you quickly realize that you don't know what to do. <laughs> and so you, you're, everyone's sitting there and like, well, what do we post? <laughs> like, what is like, and those ideation meetings are so painful sometimes. Yep. Yeah. And, and probably everyone has seen the manifestations of these. You see like some 45 year old, 
marketing people try and like replicate a TikTok dance that was popular three months ago. And it just feels like your parents are trying to like be cool with you. And it just feels weird. Um, or, you know, you, you say like, well, we'll go hire somebody and that's fine and all, but what I found in that scenario is that there's like a cultural divide. And so the person that actually does understand the nuance of the platform comes in and says, this is how things work on this. And you'll have a conversation like, well, I'm going to like do a, you know, a iPhone selfie and I'm going to like walk around the office and kind of like show what it's like to work here or something like that. And someone will say like, well, maybe we should get like a nicer camera and like frame it and set yeah. it up and da, yeah. da, da. And like they, it's just like hard to undo, you know, kind of like the, the hard wiring of, of culture. And, and part of this is generational culture even um, to like see a different point of view. And so, yeah, I think, I don't know, part of it might be changing of guard, but also my experience has been with, these types of drastic changes, um, you know, to get, to get the people in the middle of the bell curve, you kind of have to have like people that have made the transition and have made like playbooks essentially and kind of left breadcrumbs for other people to follow. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, fortune 500 company can look at what other fortune 500 company did to like win on TikTok, then there's probably a little bit more, um, I don't know, buy-in, yep. they can just copy what they did. Yeah, I think, so I have a couple thoughts here. So I don't know if it was actually on this episode or if I'm crossing my wires with someone else. It might not even have been Gary who said this, but uh, we see this a lot as we talk to brands. And the brands we talk to aren't massive brands. Some of them are pretty small. Um, it's like a couple employees some of them are 30 to 40 employees. They're doing 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year. And what what I think he said in this, or someone said somewhere, but this is true, we see this, is people are like, okay, this is important. I'm gonna hire a 20 year old to just go do this. And they go hire a 20 year old and they kind of say, okay, go do your thing on TikTok. But what they're missing is the fact that they aren't, involved in it so they don't understand how it works the interesting stuff is from the person that made the hire not the 20 year old yeah and they don't they just don't understand maybe we shouldn't be posting this trendy dance like maybe it should be something else and so being involved in the creation of the content i think at least at this stage in the game um people in leadership need to have a much greater pulse on what is happening and what is being produced. It's not that you can't hire that person and have them do it all, but you can't just see the post for the first time as you're scrolling through the feed. Oh, that is such a fantastic point. Um, so there's that. And then I had another thought. This actually, I think you guys know one of my, he's kind of wearing down on me to be honest, but uh, a guy on TikTok that I, was fascinated with was Alex Hermosi who kind of came out of nowhere and he's like this sales bro sells supplements. And now he's um, started this thing called acquisition.com. And I believe they just acquire companies and help scale them. Um, But he like came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's everywhere and he's got all these interesting takes and some things that I picked up on um, as I started watching him. One, they invest a lot of money into the content. Um, I think he said for him, they spend about $100,000 just for production of content. And when you look at his videos, you're like, how is that possible? He's just sitting on a couch. But he's got a team for, like Doug said, a team that does YouTube, a team that does TikTok and, and LinkedIn and all this stuff. And it's not necessarily that he is filming different content for every channel, but it's being packaged correctly for each channel. Um, so there was that, like... You do have to, I think, like Doug said, it doesn't have to be expensive, but there has to be like some investment into it. Um, Gary, Gary V's old guy. Oh, yeah. Is that who it was? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, the other thing, he had a video just recently. He was on some podcast. I don't even know what it was, but I wrote this down because I thought it was pretty 
pretty profound. He said, the same guy Alex said, I think most people have a dramatic misunderstanding of what it takes to be successful. They're like, I want to be an influencer. And they start doing a post today for four weeks. And then they're like, why am I not famous yet? We, meaning him and his company, did 400 episodes of the podcast before we hit the top 10 charts. So if you assume that's a weekly podcast that's like probably 30 minutes to two hours long, 400 episodes. That's that's a lot longer than four weeks of time. And I think that's a hard thing for people to grasp too. Like, But this is all brand building in general, right? Like you're putting dollars and time out there, whether it's a podcast or it's shooting a commercial with Snoop Dogg, and you're just like hoping that it bring some kind of return on investment. I just don't think people are thinking about, many people are thinking about social media through that type of a long-term lens. It's not a think I can say definitively that people are not. Um, it's the, Those are such fantastic points, Raj, that you made. And I'm even thinking about just the lens of maybe some of the things I would have done differently. But I think you got to start with strategy by channel it's like, what do we really want to accomplish here or here or here? And then build the content backwards from that. Because most brands, they're just finding a way, we've talked about this, to square peg their brand into a round hole of content that makes no sense for their brand to be there. And that you can't take that approach. And then go get the major stakeholders, like what you're saying, involved in the creation of that content. And when you actually pitch them, as let's take like a podcast, for example. When you say, hey, we'd like your help on this podcast, probably what they're thinking is, okay, I'll come in for an episode. No. When you talk to the executive, say, I want you for 100 episodes. That's what I want you for. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see what happens after that. Yep. Get them because it's actually this concept of putting your brand building through a lens of time versus a lens of dollars I think is a winning strategy for many marketers that are out there thinking about how do I get the executive team? How do I get the broader company on my side about how we can build this over time? And I think you are you nailed it, which is one, let's focus on time and then let's focus on getting everyone involved in the mission. And the way that we actually build the brand is with time, not with dollars. And then the investment really is just headcount. That's the investment. Mm-hmm. There's one more thing on this, I think, that is maybe like a layer deeper and that I, it feels like there's this process of like anything with creative work and brand building is certainly, you know, a like hard mode creative endeavor. You kind of have to spend the time to like get out all the bad ideas, like flush out the bad ideas. There's this guy, um, Julian Shapiro's kind of coined this concept of the creativity faucet. And he basically studied people that regularly make hits in their industries, whatever they are, whether they're music uh, musicians or authors or whatnot. And even though they regularly make hits, they just plan time to basically flush out the bad ideas. What I think is the hardest with brand building is there can be actual large penalties for flushing out bad ideas. And the fear of having a bad idea, especially that gets you negative press on social Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is so strong that I don't think most brands ever approach actually flushing out bad ideas. They just play kind of, you know, super safe and the employees even basically realign their expectations. You have these creatives who are world, world class creatives who just know that they can't actually do creative work because it's not allowed. And so they just shift down their focus to, you know, fit inside of the the brand box, so to speak, um, so that there's no like negative consequences. I agree with that. And what come what came to mind when you said, you know, getting um, bad PR for stuff you did reminded me of the Pepsi Kylie Jenner. Uh, was it like a music video or, yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever? I think the counter argument to that is that was a bad idea because it was like so out of touch with what actually is happening on the platform. Mm -hmm. One thing I would say is 
if you are willing to basically fell in public with social media, you can iterate really quickly. So it's not like you have to come out with this crazy idea. You can put out a post and you can see what it looks like and you can push it a little further and you can push it a little further. If you look back at our podcast, actually the content is fairly similar, but the style of the videos, all that stuff from our first episodes, even up to like halfway through where we're at now, it just didn't look nearly as polished. And you could say, maybe that was better, maybe not. But I don't think if we had said, we need to have this vibe and like this whole thing that we feel really good about, we never would have done it. Like it happened because we were essentially just putting in the reps um, over time. I think that is a good point. Um, But I also don't necessarily think it has to be as high stakes. You can start with smaller things and basically push it, uh, push the envelope as you get traction and as, as you, as you see what works. But what it, the, the, I think, and this is, I think along the lines of what Brand is saying here, you, you just can't be tone deaf. That's yeah. what you cannot afford is you cannot be tone deaf. And so you can be aggressive and try weird stuff. No. And, and it's not even to say like try irreverent stuff or stuff that's going to like yeah. get you canceled, but the conversations that happen are just so, in my mind, like crazy. It's like, oh, we can't do this. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. We, so one, one, this, what's coming up to my mind when you're talking about this brand is we were, we were working on creative for a very large celebrity that we were doing an endorsement deal with. And we actually wanted to remake this famous infomercial from the 90s that has like Michael Bolton. It like played at like 2 or 3 a.m. and it was love songs from the 90s <laughs> and redo it. And it was a really aggressive idea. And when we pitched the idea um, to the broader executive team, how do you think that idea went over? Poorly. Very poorly. <laughs> because everyone's so risk averse. Um, but where you get over hurdles like that is by what exactly Brant said earlier. It was like, I just look at the wins. We're not tone deaf. We're not going to make a mistake, but we are going to do something that maybe is going to help us stand out in the marketplace and make people remember us. Um, and so it this isn't easy, but I do think for me it's energizing to think about any level of brand could go and get in the ring and throw some punches, which is really cool. Yep. I think to wrap that up, what I would say just from our own experience at a small company with no budget, uh, I think the biggest thing to, to actually get over is not the cost, it's the time and the, the, the commitment. Because we've had that debate many times, like how many hours a week should we be spending on this? Even though we record for 45 minutes, it takes me time to edit it and to splice it all up. And, you know, you can put workflows in, in place that make it... Um, that make it faster, but it does take time. It's just, there's no two ways around that. And so commit to something and commit to it, not for four weeks, but, and probably not for four months, maybe six or a year and, and go out and start trying to build content for social. I think that is a better way to look at it because you'll learn as you go. And as you build content, it will, it will evolve. Okay, so the second half of this Gary V uh, pod, he starts to talk about uh, Web3, crypto, NFTs, and, and why he's long on, on the space. And that, that kind of reminded us, and Brant brought up a podcast that Mark Andreessen did, I think it was in June. So this one's a little mm-hmm. bit, um, maybe it wasn't quite, no, I think we were in the crypto bloodbath when it came out. We were, yeah. And it was on the Sam Harris podcast, and Sam kind of asked him, like, why do you, why are you guys so aggressively pursuing crypto and Web3? I think Mark said about a third of their entire portfolio and staff is invested in this, and they are continuing to make bets in the crypto space. Um, it's been a crazy time for crypto, for sure. I think a lot of people you know, they, they jumped in on some of the hype around NFTs. They invested at the peak. They lost a bunch of money. There's been some really crazy things that have happened with companies and company leadership 
and investments. And on top of all that, you know, the market crashed and the value of, of the coins and the tokens has gone down significantly. But we thought it kind of would lead to a conversation amongst us who have been working in crypto for about the last year. We, we've done some things in crypto on the NFT side. We pursued a business opportunity in crypto and uh, decided ultimately to pivot away from that when everything crashed. But lead to a conversation on like what the current state of crypto is, why we like it or why we don't like it, and see where we can go from there. So I'm going to uh, start this one off with Brant. Uh, where are you at? Where's your head at with the with everything happening in crypto right now? Hmm. It's a tricky one to untangle. I think we always knew there was a lot that was going to be washed out. I mean, I think... Um, you know, there was a, a feeling as we looked around whether we went to conferences or in discords or whatnot, and it was just like, there's no way this all lasts. Yeah. There's too much, I don't know, too much um, kind of money be thrown around just based on hype and, and nothing of substance, really. But I think that, you know, the reason that we got into it is is still valid and still there. Um, maybe the audience is, has dwindled, but it does feel like, you know, there's still room for, um, you know, basically some, some kind of like missing primitives on the internet to take hold that, that would be useful. And, um, you know, in this podcast that you mentioned, Mark Andreessen, who was critical in, in bringing, you know, the modern web browser, Mm -hmm. uh, to play just mentioned that like, you know, as they were doing that, they had to come up with a lot of different protocols to kind of display the data the way that we all see it and use it and interact with it. And they were never able to come up with a way to kind of manage digital ownership um, and and payments. And, you know, we've come up with ways to, to kind of like, I don't know, skirt around that, but it's not like a basic protocol of the internet that, everyone could just build on top of the way that something like HTTP is or TCP or, and, and you know, these might be meaningless to most people, but um, they did allow a group of engineers and um, people building products to come in and kind of all agree how things should fit and work together. The problem with web two that I, that I think is a valid criticism is like, yes, you can create APIs, but the APIs are, you know, kind of managed by varying companies and they can decide how they work and what data they share and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that does bring significant limitation to the amount of like innovation that can happen mm-hmm. and leads to some problems with like inequity on the internet that uh, could potentially still be solved by crypto or Web3 or whatever we call it in the future. I think part of the reason um, crypto is undergoing such a, and it's always has been undergo had this sort of reputation is around people wanting to get rich off of it. And I think that's just natural. Like people feel like, Hey, I see something here. Maybe other people don't see it or everyone else is making money. So I'm going to throw some dollars in here and see what happens. But most of the people investing, I think, as I've talked to to many of these people, they don't actually understand what you're talking about, Brent. Like, why is it important? They're just like, oh, I want Shiba to go up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to get rich. And, um, you know, that is what I think has caused this crazy run up and this crazy crash and event. Well- well, the, this is like where I share sentiments with someone like Mark Andreessen. His perspective is like, well, this is no different than the early internet. And that phrase is, it almost makes me feel like itchy because it's like said by so many people that don't even know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But like I, I participated on the early internet fairly, you know, in, in depth and coded a little bit back then, all that kind of stuff. And, um, what was clear back then is there's the same kind of energy and, and same types of people coming along. Like my dad had an early internet company and 
you know, the, the types of people that that attracted to kind of like join in along the ride were the same types of people that are, you know, trying to figure out if Sheba is going to go up. Yep. So I read a, there was a profile on the information. I think it was called like, what do I do now? Anyways, they talked to a bunch of people who left their career through this boom to go work for Web3 companies. As you've seen, and this is not particular to crypto companies, but layoffs are rampant. So every time you open the web browser, there's a new company that's laying off 10%, 15% of their, of their staff. So they went and talked to a bunch of these people. And one thing that stood out to me is the one the first person they, that uh, they talked to described his interviewing experience at OpenSea. And he had gotten connected to like a recruiter, the hiring manager through a friend of a friend. And he went through this interview and, you know, they clicked and he said, essentially the manager said, Hey, well, listen, we don't really have a position for you, but you seem smart and you know about crypto. So let's just hire you and see what happens. And there's probably a lot of that going on. Now, I try to put myself in the position of the guys that that started OpenSea, and we have seen them um, through video conference. We got to do a fireside chat with them. And they're just, you know, kind of some shy engineers that have spent the last few years building OpenSea with pretty slow growth and, you know, some signals of success. And then all of a sudden, it literally goes like berserk and then they take on was it 400 million dollars in a raise or over multiple raises in 2021 and you've got all this money your company's going like crazy and it's just hard to imagine what you would do in that situation like it's easy to say now like oh well i wouldn't have done any of that stuff all this stuff was frivolous blah 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 but at the same time when you have that immense amount of demand you have to try to do something and capture it so um lots of mistakes were made lots of money has been lost i'm gonna just read a couple of headlines we're just gonna go headline browsing on things that have happened in the last call it 45 days in crypto Ben Harrison, president of FTX US, steps down. Jesse Powell, co-founder and CEO of Kraken, steps down. Michael Saylor steps down and transitions to executive chair. Sam Trabuco, Trubuco, co-CEO of Alameda Research, steps down. Doquan stepped down because he caused a $40 billion empire to collapse and is now a global fugitive with 200 countries looking for him. Not good. CEO, <laughs> CEO of bankrupt, bankrupt crypto firm Celsius steps down. So all of these leaders are like either getting pushed out or they're saying like, hey, this has been too much. I can't handle it mentally. I, I'm out. But then on the opposite side of the coin, you have headlines that are coming out like Starbucks details its blockchain-based loyalty platform and NFT community, Starbucks Odyssey. Proof Collective raises $50 million in funding led by A16Z. Reddit's Ohanian leads $54 million capital raise for doodles. Schwab, Citadel Securities, Fidelity, and other Wall Street firms start crypto exchange EDX markets. Christie's has launched its own NFT marketplace called Christie's 3.0. And then how Meta's $70 billion bet on the metaverse compares to other big tech company gambles. So there's still actually like a lot happening um, when you look through it. Doug, what are your thoughts here? How are you wh- How are you feeling about crypto? What do you think kind of the next um, year or so plays out? And is it going to last? I would encourage the entire audience to go listen to Mark Andreessen and talk to Sam Harris because there's getting his perspective as the inventor of the browser – um, I think is very valid and very interesting. And he says, you know, crypto basically, the way that I would frame this to the audience, he doesn't use this analogy, but I would, is like the finishing work in a house. This is like the carpet gets laid and the baseboards and if you want crown molding and like the the vents get put on, think the doorknobs, things like that. 
for the internet that crypto can play. And specifically what he's mentioning here is database, which like if you're a marketer and you've ever tried to do a partnership in your life, having a database where you don't have to share information back and forth between brands, just that simple problem, very valuable. You hear a lot of people say that crypto is a solution that's looking for a problem. I don't agree with that. I think the problems are pretty well known. Having a ledger of information would be very, very helpful for many brands. That's one example. Another example is just a payments layer that sits on the internet there where it's that's non-exploitative. So Chris Dixon talks about this a lot in Web2 that really six companies made all the money in Web2. Mm-hmm. And not just the money, but now you have, if you depending on what side you live on, left or right politically, you can find a really big problem with Web2. Um, and the, the problems are different. Brant mentioned some of them. The exploitative nature, ads, things like that is more people on the left hate. And on the right, um, cancel culture, who gets, to, who gets to decide who gets to be on what platform, etc. So having a trust layer and an ownership layer of who gets to get, who, like the democratization of the financial side of the web, the, the, the democratization of the trust aspect of the web, and then the democratization of data, meaning the ability to go access a centralized ledger, those are all things that I think everybody would go, yeah, that's really cool. The challenge is with crypto, just because you know the problem doesn't mean you know the solution. And finding the solution, I think what you're seeing Andreessen Horowitz do is say, we're going to dedicate a third of our our company to this because um, they know these things have to be solved. They just don't know who's going to solve them, and they don't know which company is going to solve it. So they're just trying to make as many bets as they can in the space, which I think is a wise strategy. And I don't know how long this is going to take. Sometimes I look at this, and I'm like, geez, we still today don't have the killer app for crypto. It still has not come yet. Um, And usually, or maybe always, the ascent is never a straight line. And what we're doing right now is we went down down the deep cliff of like, oh, we got to clear out all the get rich quick mm-hmm. and keep the builders who are actually trying to solve these core base problems. So I'm still a very big believer in crypto. I don't know how long it's going to take. The fact that Ethereum pulled off the merge to proof of stake, I think is a very, very big deal um, for that blockchain. And I think will lead to a lot of really good things. But it's kind of a, yep, something's going to work. I just don't know what and I don't know when. There's something actually like the, the more I've thought about it, um, kind of stepping away, you know, where we've had some time away from crypto, so to speak, for our company. Um, there's this concept and and Mark brings this up in that podcast of a principal agent problem. And just to kind of like quickly recap what that is, it's essentially that there are there's kind of been this shift over the last let's say i don't know 80 years where instead of the people um that are like owners that like you know let's just say like start a company and like kind of build it up and own that company and have employees most of the power in the world is actually going to agents and these are like managers or hired ceos or things like that mm-hmm. And if you think about what the government is, they're all agents, you know, in our behalf. And we basically, I mean, as long as we've all been alive, we've lived in this society that runs on this model. Like we don't really own much of anything and it's moving more and more that direction with like buy now, pay later stuff even just. And so like it's, it's a societal trend that I think is making most people unhappy. The fact that you know, I could live in a town for 20 years and I don't have any real like investment into it because I don't really own any of it. I don't have any skin in the game, so to speak. I might own a house in the neighborhood, but I think that's a very different proposition than having some kind of ownership in the city. And so this isn't just about online things and web two and whatever. Like we spend a lot of our time online, so there's a lot of concepts there, but this is like a much broader thing. And so I think the reason that this all started to slow down was like 
these agents in this kind of principal agent problem started to realize, oh, there's kind of a shift going on and we're like losing our power. We're losing control. And some of it was bad. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of bad stuff that happened because, you know, yep. things went off the rails in certain cases. But um, I do think there are arguments for a lot of like positive things for society. And this gets into like a broader argument of uh, basically like libertarianism versus, you know, the other two sides. But I don't think it, in my mind it's quite that black and white. I've, I feel like there's concepts that could live within like our kind of like modern government system where we could all have like a little bit more ownership in, you know, our communities and the things that we spend our time with. Okay. There's a couple of things that came to mind as we were talking. One, the Ethereum merge happened a couple of weeks ago and Brant, I don't know if you recall this, but I think this was earlier this year. We were talking about how difficult of a challenge that was. Yep. And I think you, I think you described it as it's basically impossible. And at the time there's way more transactions happening on the network. You know, maybe this has helped that it slowed down, but they pulled off the merge. It went super smooth and there wasn't actually a lot of fireworks around it. Yep. I think that's a really good thing personally. Um, you didn't see a ton of price speculation. It means like it's just happening because it needed to happen and it's the right thing for the industry to move forward, especially for Ethereum. On the side of the use cases for crypto or the killer apps, so to speak, I think I have a different point of view and it's one that I want to get Brant's take on here. But when I think about it, there are some really killer use cases for crypto. You talked about these, Doug. Store value, provable digital scarcity, whether that's in form or collectible form, provable ownership, the ability to transfer value or objects in, like quickly without any intermediary. All of those things are game-changing ch technologies, but the thing that's missing is the delivery mechanism is still off. Said another way, they just have to get the UX right. And people have been saying that for... A little while. And it's something, Brant, that I've heard you kind of like get on, on a little bit of a rant about. But for this to work, it seems to me that the end user, they don't need to know what's happening in the background. It would feel similar to Venmo. You send your money and it, you get it and, and no, you know, there's no, I didn't have to know that cryptography is being used and I'm signing with my private keys and all of this stuff. Yeah. But it, that, that argument's been happening for a while. Like, why haven't we solved the U, UX problem, the UI, user experience problem, do you think? I, I actually think it has been solved in way more instances than people want to admit. I've seen a lot of really beautiful interfaces on top of crypto stuff in the last year, especially. Mm -hmm. But it's not solved the, the core problem. I've shifted my opinion on this a lot um, also since we've stepped away. And I think the the problem is actually what I was just talking about. Like if you, if you remove crypto and I say, okay, I'm gonna spin up a company that will allow you to purchase land. And I'm gonna give you like a piece of paper or some, you know, representation that like you own this land over here. Well, that doesn't work because I haven't gone through the necessary steps to have the governments respect what I'm doing. Yep. And that core connection to like our institutions that already exist hasn't happened. And so until that happens, none of this really matters in my mind. Like these institutions that control whatever is scarce in the real world have to basically say like, I'm going to you know, treat crypto as something that is real yep, and accept it. And I think that that will happen and is happening, um, you know, with some fairly large institutions, but that's what I think is going to take a lot of time. Yeah. So say that doesn't happen. Is that the killer for crypto? Does, is, does it die? Or do you think there is some kind of 
revolution, so to speak, where people are tired of all of these kind of built-in principal agent like you talk about, and it actually just changes because the technology's out there and there's nothing that can really stop it from happening. I think if it's a matter of controlling things online, then you know there's more flexibility there. But my personal belief is that this has to translate into the offline for it to be something big. Hmm. Um, otherwise, I probably actually would fall more in the camp of this is a great tool for um, you know, buying illegal drugs online and basically trying to do illegal stuff. Yeah. A lot of interesting stuff there on, on the crypto topic. I think that, you know, so think about this real quick. When Netscape came out, he was actually described, who did he say it was, but they brought in some marketing chief marketing officer for some company and they sat him in front of the computer to use Netscape. And he went to try to touch the screen and he didn't even know how to use a mouse. When was that? Do you know? Uh, That would have been the early 90s. The early 90s. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we had the personal computing revolution. But I think if you anchor against really what the uh, the mass adoption of the internet, it wasn't until the smartphone like where every single person was connected. And that happened in 2010-ish, so 20 years. And you can't discount fast internet too. Yep. So you have a 20-year time frame. We're 10 years into crypto. So maybe it's just way early. Yeah, I mean, you went from, you know, the the time we're discussing. I think the stat was like by the mid-90s, there was 200 million people on the internet. So... I mean, there's a lot going on. A lot of that's still a lot of people, but now I think the number is like six billion. Yep. Well, it'll be fun to see. My personal, I still like crypto. I still love NFTs. I had a ton of fun collecting. That's kind of my personal style, and um, I'm not buying many NFTs now, but I do have some, and I like them. So I think there's a bright future for crypto, and it's just going to take a little bit of time. Listeners, well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Modern Commerce, and we'll catch you next week. See ya. Later. Later.